Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Vesplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. My name is Serene Haydar, and I'm the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Coordinator at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And this session is titled Pharmacogenomics in Children, which tests and what comes after testing. Join me and my co-presenter, Dr. Shannon Manzi, who is the Director of of Safety and Quality of Boston Children's Hospital and also the past president of PPA. You may hear the term pharmacogenomics or pharmacogenetics as we speak. Now, in a very strict definition, pharmacogenetics is a single result. Um, However, oftentimes these terms get used interchangeably, and pharmacogenomics refers to the science or the study of pharmacogenetics. So do we, uh, we have seen in the literature, obviously, and also you may hear us use these terms interchangeably uh, throughout the lecture. So what is the goal of pharmacogenomics? The goal is to reduce adverse drug reactions. Hundreds of thousands of, year, uh, hundreds of thousands of patients each year in the United States, let alone the rest of the world, are affected by adverse drug reactions. And as you know, adverse drug reactions are those events that are relatively unexpected. There is no error involved. It was not the wrong patient or the wrong drug or the wrong dose given. These are all of the uh, appropriate things were done and still the patient had a poor outcome. And so how do we use pharmacogenomics to help predict and prevent those types of drug reactions? In addition, adverse drug reactions cause approximately 6% of hospital admissions every year and is over $1 billion per year to treat these. And if you look at medical errors plus the adverse drug events combined, they are a leading cause of death in the United States. And that is a quite sobering statistic that we all need to keep in mind as we move forward and try and make medication use safer in our patients. Pharmacogenomics also can be used as companion testing. Now, in some cases, it's a requirement to initiate treatment. So if we think about Ibocaftor, for example, there are specific CFTR variants that you have to have in order for the treatment to be effective and to actually be approved by insurance in in many cases. We also use them as a screening tool prior to the initiation of treatment for things such as 6-mecaptopurine or the thiopurines and certain gene combinations we'll talk about going forward. Another use is to salvage drugs with high toxicity profiles. So some of the drugs that are no longer on the market, such as cisapride, had uh, a very impactful uh, you know, clinical profile when they were used, but there were certain patients who had high toxicity from them and they were, were removed from the market. So how do we identify the patients for whom the drug would be beneficial and not cause those high toxicity profiles? The other is improved adherence. So believe it or not, even if the panel that you send for your pharmacogenomic screening comes back completely normal, and I will use quotation marks here because no one is completely normal. Obviously, we're all, we all have variants. But 
let's say for the argument's sake, it comes back on the panel that you send that everything is normal. You actually can see, based on several literature reviews, improved adherence to drug therapy even for those patients because they feel like you have now tailored the drug regimen to them. And that's very powerful and very important. And other uh, use for this is that it is now a requirement for certain drugs and is highly encouraged on all uh, new investigational new drug applications to the FDA to include the pharmacogenomic information because that actually can advise the labeling going forward. So pharmacogenomic testing. There are a broad range of tests available, and we're going to spend some time talking a little bit about SNP-based panels or single nucleotide polymorphisms, SNP in, uh, in brief, versus sequencing panels. And that can be something along the lines of a whole exome, a targeted exome, or a whole genome sequencing. And it's important also to set level set the stage about what we're talking about for phenotypes. Now, phenotypes is the reflection. What do you see uh, from the genetic expression? Now, clearly we can't see if someone is an ultra rapid metabolizer versus we can see if you have blue eyes. But that is, in essence, what we're talking about is what is the manifestation of your genetics? And for pharmacogenomics, we're talking about metabolizer statuses and how quickly or how slowly you actually are able to um, metabolize medications and other things, but we're going to focus on medications, depending on your gene expression or the result and the resultant enzyme production from that. And so you'll hear us talk about ultra-rapid, rapid, intermediate, normal, and poor metabolizers throughout these, these conversations. It is, uh, pharmacogenomics is the only branch of genetics to actually use what we call the star allele nomenclature. And so you'll hear us talk about star one, star one, or star one, star 17. And that is important to know because when you talk to geneticists and genetic counselors, they're not used to hearing these star terminologies. And it's important to be able to explain that as a pharmacist and what these mean. Oftentimes, the higher the star number, it represents a decrease or complete loss of function, but that is definitely not always the case. So for example, when we talk about uh, the gene CYP2C19, we actually, uh, it, this is one that's very common of a star 17 is a gain of functional allele, meaning that that person makes more enzyme than what we call the wild type normal or standard. So it's important to understand that you can't just uh, know what the function is based on the number. You actually need to go and look it up and, and realize what that means for the patient. It is one more piece of information. This is not a crystal ball. This is not the only answer. So use it like you would for anything else, like a serum creatinine or a white blood cell count. The, the nice thing is, is that the pharmacogenomics over time don't change. So a serum creatinine or a white blood cell count is often that moment in time. Now, when I say they don't change, there's always a caveat, right? So other drugs you're on can actually change the expression or what we see for a phenotype. That's called phenoconversion. And so it is important to realize that although the genetics doesn't change necessarily, the manifestation or the phenotype that the patient shows actually can change over time. And so, as I said in the beginning, this is very complicated. Uh, pharmacology is key. So remembering that your prodrugs are actually metabolized to their active phase and that if that's the case, 
then that's different than a drug that's already active when they take it and is then metabolized to inactive metabolites. And when they're going through the same genes or the same enzyme system, then you can have differing results based on the type of drug going through. And that's a super important thing to remember. Also active metabolites, certainly, and those metabolites get further metabolized down the line. What are the excretion pathways? Do they have any disease and uh, disease of their organ systems? And will that affect the toxicity or the, the efficacy of the drug we're talking about? Developmental pharmacology, that's my favorite. Uh, and we will talk a little bit about that in our case as we go forward. And drug-drug interactions, so many things. And that is why the pharmacist is the ideal person to be involved in pharmacogenomic testing and results because we really are the ones that understand the pharmacology the best. Preemptive pharmacogenomic testing. So that's useful in cases where we know that the cost savings generated by preemptive testing is a major factor in offering testing. So if you know that, for example, um, preventing morbidity secondary to common adverse drug reactions, or even uncommon, but very, very severe or significant adverse drug reactions, then you want to make sure that you are testing prior to putting a patient on that drug so that you can save them uh, from having this adverse reaction happen to them, but also making sure that you are offering the correct therapy going forward. Some drugs are designed to only be effective with certain variant statuses, which we talked about before, such as the uh, Ivacaftor situation. And therefore you have to offer that, um, or you should offer that <laughs> preemptively. And then also to provide accurate guidance to clinicians when presented with a pharmacogenomic result and making sure that you have a published validated guideline and a, a basis for your recommendations. So pharmacogenomic testing in children, obviously this is the space in which Serene and I both live, and the common drug drug uh, common drug gene pairs that we see tested in pediatric patients are often codeine and CYP2D6, ondansetron and CYP2D6, clopidogrel, yes, we actually have quite a few children on clopidogrel, and 2C19, voriconazole and 2C19, phenytoin or phosphenytoin and 2C9, warfarin, and uh, this is a combination, so this is actually CYP2C9 and VCORE-C1, um, abacavir, and this one's important because of the Stevens-Johnson's-like reaction that they can have to this drug, and really preemptive screening is super important before putting a patient on abacavir for HLA-B5701. Carbamazepine and HLA-B1502, and mercaptopurine, as we talked about before, the thiopurine, so this is mercaptopurine and azathioprine, are the two most common thiopurines that we use in pediatric patients. And for those, we use a screening tool for TPMT and NUDT15. And then Ivacaftor, as we talked about in CFTR. There are several more, but these are very common to see in um, pediatric practices who actually uh, do pediatric pharmacogenomic testing. So uh, when is it relevant to care or are, are, is what we're finding relevant to care? Believe it or not, it is. So as you can see here, um, we've had uh, some patients, about 36%, who had no significant finding for what they came for. So they have a question, right? Whether it is what 
medication should I be on for depression or things along those lines. However, when we say we look at the entire panel, most of those patients and 89% have come back with a significant, what we call incidental pharmacogenomic result, meaning that they didn't come to us for warfarin pharmacogenomics, but we actually can inform that now. So it is uh, very, very interesting. And if you add these up, over 92% of the patients we see actually have an actionable result that will, if not answer the question right now, over time, um, be, be very important to their medication use over their lifetime. And then here you can see it's just a different graph of our clinical relevance to the presenting issues for the actionable genetic variants that we have. And uh, 2C19 is, is uh, highly the winner there, um, but uh, obviously, as you can see here, VCOR C1, which informs warfarin use, as we talked about before, um, is, is one of those um, high winners for our incidental findings. And then Again, same thing with the relevance of the finding in relation to the referral for the indication. So our psychiatry um, patients who come in, as you can see, they have a actionable result in the reason they came for more than 60% of the time. Uh, and then they have more findings, about 30%, that were uh, actionable, but not necessarily for the reason that they came for. So what goes into our electronic health record? It is decided by the oversight committee. We have multidisciplinary representation as we talked about, and we actually developed a scoring tool based on other um, published literature that helps us decide what goes in to the record. We um, also talk a lot about ethical dilemmas, which would take a whole other hour lecture and I'm not gonna cover so much here, although Dr. Haydar is gonna get into a little bit of that. And we also need to make sure that there's a published guideline for children. And if it's available or not validated, we have to make sure that we are doing something that makes sense for our population. So what are the characteristics of a good pharmacogenomic candidate to put into your record? Well, ideally they have a narrow therapeutic index. So your toxicity and your effective dose need to be relatively closely related. For amoxicillin, this is not the case, right? You can have a very wide range of dosing. And if your dosing isn't quite right, um, it is not likely to result in toxicity, although questionable efficacy, correct? But your genetics don't play such a role in that metabolism. However, when we talk about something like warfarin or phenytoin, then you can see that your toxicity and your efficacious dose are very closely related. Um, and that makes a good candidate for pharmacogenomics. Also, if they have a single gene mutation versus multigenic, meaning it goes through multiple pathways and you've got to add all those up and make sure that in the end, what comes out for your recommendation makes sense, and it can get quite complicated. Um, a single gene mutation, particularly if you're just starting off with trying to put this in your electronic health record is absolutely the way to go. Um, and we've talked about the published dosing guidelines. When are they worth it? So we looked at what is the number needed to treat. The ethnic variation, I will tell you, we stay away from. We originally had this question in, and what we found is that people don't know what they are. So you hear from your grandparents or others that, you know, this is the history of our family. However, um, when we do testing, we find out that maybe that's not exactly true. And so, yes, we know that some variant statuses are more likely in certain ethnic uh, populations, but we as an institution took the approach that if we're offering it, we're offering it for everyone. That may not be the case for um, the way that others use this, but we 
because of the um, the population that we treat, it became evident that we were seeing a lot of rare variants in certain uh, patients that we may not have expected based on the ethnic variation. And so early on, we made the decision that we were not doing it uh, by ethnicity. And then, of course, we always talk about, you know, the costs and if it's covered by insurance. And we spend a lot of time discussing with insurance companies about coverage. Revisible reporting is very important, and over time, your interpretations can change. So there are new guidelines published for existing results, as well as um, activity definitions may change. And so you have to change what you've told your patients. And that is not true for an x-ray taken in 2016, right? You don't go back and say, oh, by the way, you know, now this is updated and this is the reading now on your x-ray from 2016. However, what happens with pharmacogenomics results is they are revisible over time or a variant status that was not did not have a guideline originally now has a new guideline and they have that variant status. So you have to really think about how are you getting in touch with patients over time? What happens when the patients are aged out of the system? What happens if you no longer have an account active for them? And how do you frame a conversation when the last time you talked to these patients was over five years ago and they don't even remember who you are? So it, it takes a lot of work to make sure that we are um, having the correct script, if you will, uh, to talk to and, and to reach out to patients. And then amending EHR documentation, you have to have a policy to make sure they understand that, yes, the initial lab report won't change, but now you have an addendum. So what's next? We will continue to add more drug gene pairs. We will uh, alert prescribers to preemptive testing where it is appropriate. And then we have to create a new IT uh, platform for handling results because they're getting very, very big. Uh, and we can't continue to use what we call our Band-Aid approach any longer. And that, again, is a whole other conversation that could take, a, take an hour on IT platforms for pharmacogenomic results. And uh, we continue to work with our payers so our remaining challenges are lack of education, uh, clinical understanding for both our patients as well as our colleagues, and what we don't know yet about variants of unknown significance. Um, all that changing enzyme expression with development is very important and the reliability of the testing. I put 2D6 here with an exclamation point because that one is particularly difficult to type. Uh, and then one of many confounding variables as we talk about drug-drug interactions and other things. I, what I'm going to talk to you about for the next, uh, for the rest of this presentation is what happens after testing. So one of the things that Shannon discussed is changes in activity scores or changes in phenotypes that we have to return back to patients that we probably haven't seen in the last five years. And there are other things that may happen, and I'll discuss two of them today. The first one is familial, familial implications of pharmacogenomic testing and pharmacogenomic results. So the most common, there are certain pharmacogenes that um, are dominant in nature for in, in genomic testing. And so in the result, once we have a result uh, for, for a patient, we actually will know that there is a likelihood that they got the results either from their mother or from their father and their siblings may have some implications for the results that they have. So there are some genes that have dominant expressions like CACNA1S and RYR1 that predispose to malignant hyperthermia, HLA that predisposes to skin reactions with certain medications, and MTRNR1 that predisposes to, uh, to aminoglycoside-induced autotoxicity, and then other genes that have X-linked inheritance such as G6PD. All of these have implications for, familiar, for family members and direct family members of a patient.
So we're going to talk about RYR1 and CACNA1S related to malignant hypothermia. So what is malignant hypothermia? As many of you know, it is a potential fatally, fatal disorder that occurs because of an increased and prolonged muscle contraction of skeletal muscles. It is a genetically inherited disorder. Of, it, is an auto, it has an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. And again, the two genes are RYR1 and CACNA1S. Because it has a dominant inheritance pattern, people who have inherited a high-risk variant um, result when we receive the result, what it means to us is that at least one of the parents has that high-risk malignant hypothermia-associated result. The implications of that mean that if we know that and if we see a patient who has a high-risk malignant hypothermia result, meaning that they should not receive certain medications such as inhaled fluorinated anesthetics or succinylcholine. Um, if we tell them that they should not receive these medications and they're contraindicated for them because of their risk of developing malignant hypothermia, we also could provide genetic counseling to the family member, to the family of the patient to explain to them what that result means and what the implication of this positive test result are for the patient's first degree relatives. So meaning their biological parents, their full biological siblings, and offer cascade testing to first degree relatives. So cascade testing really means offering testing for the patient's parents, as well as the siblings, in our case, uh, for extra testing to determine if any of the siblings have inherited the high risk pharmacogenomic variants. So let's talk about a case. CS is a six-year-old boy who undergoes preventive pharmacogenomic testing, and he has three siblings who have not undergone pharmacogenomic testing. So our patient, you'll see, is in the middle um, of the family tree in pink, and you can see that they have two, two siblings and their mother and their father. So CS is found to have a high-risk variant in the gene RYR1, which predisposes him to developing malignant hypothermia. So genetic counseling is performed and the patient is referred to genetic counseling for an explanation of the result in addition to the pharmacist explaining the medication implications of the high-risk results. So usually what happens is we, the pharmacogenomics team, so a pharmacist meets with the patient and explains to the patient's family members what, what it means to have a high-risk result from RYR1 and what are medications that the, their child should not receive because they are at risk of developing malignant hyperthermia should they receive them. And then we ask them if they would like to be referred to uh, genetic counseling to explain to them and the family implications of this test result and offer testing for these family members. And so after discussing, with, after discussing with the genetic counselor, CS's parents opt to genotype the entire family. So what's important here are a couple of things. It's important before you return results for RYR1 and CACNA1S or any, any other pharmacogene that has familial implications. It's important to have a process set up and approved by your institutions before you actually start returning these results. Should genetic counseling be performed for the family members? Should genotype be performed and offered uh, to the family members by the institution? For example, we are a pediatric cancer institution. Should we offer genotype testing for parents uh, who are adults and do not have cancer? Should the institution follow up with 
with family members in the event of a high-risk result, and who's going to pay for the genotyping. So all of these are questions that should be established and have you should have a process set up before you actually start returning these results because they will happen, and it's important to have a process at least discussed and preferably written before you have a patient who has a high-risk result. So the family opts in for genotyping for the, for the entire family, and the result comes back as follows. CS's father and one of his sisters also carries the same genetic test, genetic variation. So all three of them are predisposed to developing malignant hyperthermia if they are exposed to a, an inhaled anesthetic or a succinylcholine in the future. So as you can see, there are implications for testing of a single family member because there are familial implications for certain pharmacogenomic testing. So quickly, a key takeaway is that although most pharmacogenes have co-dominant inheritance patterns that don't have a direct implication for family members, there are some pharmacogene that's important to test and have a process set up to before you start testing patients if you're going to, re to release the result and what is your plan to offer further either counseling or genomic testing for the direct family members of the patient. An incidental finding is a result that is not related to the indication for why the genotype was ordered. For example, in this case, pharmacogenomic testing was performed on the patient. We were not looking to see how many X chromosomes the patient has, but because one of the pharmacogenes, which is G6PD, is located on the X chromosome. The patients, uh, this allows us to determine how many X chromosome a patient has. Incidental findings are more likely to be discovered when panel pharmacogenomic testing is performed as opposed to a single gene test, because when you're performing a single gene test, you know that you're only going to get the result for the gene that you are interrogating uh, for the medication that you're interrogating. So the American College of Medical Genetics recommends that for any whole genome sequencing, um, there are about 60 genes that it's important to return findings on. These 60 genes should be reported regardless of age uh, for the patients, regardless of uh, why the gene, the sequencing, the whole genome sequencing was done, because these 60 genes predisposed to um, knowing that a person is uh, may develop cancer has a cancer predisposition syndrome or they have cardiac and endocrine diseases that we could do something about. The original and the updated list do not address pharmacogenes. However, RYR1 is on this list and we consider it a pharmacogene and return results because it affects um, malignant hyperthermia when people are exposed to certain anesthetic agents. The American College of Medical Genetics does mention for pediatrics that diagnostic genetic testing should be driven by what is the best interest of the child. So, for example, reporting a finding in a gene that causes childhood cancer would benefit the child, obviously, but also reporting an adult finding, such as a BRCA gene mutation that would predict an adult onset disease um, that would predict an adult onset disease does not have direct or immediate benefit to the child. Um, although it does not have direct, or although it does not have direct benefit to the child because BRCA gene mutation is predisposed to breast cancer when somebody becomes an adult, um, the American College of Medical Genetics does say let's return this finding to a, ch to a child because 
they pro likely have inherited this fi this finding either from their mother or from their, their father, but it would help for the parents to know this finding because it, they may elect to, to pursue certain procedures that would decrease their risk of developing cancer in the future. So the child is more likely to grow up with their parent rather than a parent who may have died because they did not know that they had a BRCA gene mutation. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a view that's a little bit different for this. Um, they consider that ethical policies in genetic testing and screening for children should specifically is acceptable if you get permission from the guardian. And then if pharmacogenomic testing carries implication beyond drug targeting or dose responsiveness, the broader implications should be discussed before testing is returned, before testing is performed. So what else? There are many other genomic community, genomic um non-genomic considerations that to take for to take account in pediatrics. Age of majority, for example, when a child turns 18 years of age, if the parents provide the consent for genotyping and the child is still on a study, it is important to reobtain age of majority uh, consent, meaning the child is now an adult and they um, they need to reconsent to stay on the study. And so I'm going to end with a couple of takeaways. First of all, Pharmacogenomics is an evolving field. It is necessary to have a process to set up process set up to update results when new evidence arises for when new evidence arises. And then for certain genes, such as for certain genes, pharmacogenomic results may affect the entire family member. And again, it is important to have a process set up to discuss family implications of genotyping for these patients. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.